Welcome to another episode of Marvel's Voices. I'm your host, Anjali Grochet. Marvel's Voices is a place to spotlight diverse storytellers from around the Marvel Universe. I'm so excited because the Marvel storyteller we're talking to today is Dr. Eve L. Ewing. I cannot say enough awesome things about Eve. She is so many things. A sociologist, a poet, an artist, an author, a Chicago native and spokesperson, activist, and one of the coolest things, a comic book writer. While Eve has a list of published work, she started writing with Marvel with Riri Williams, also known as Ironheart in 2018. Now, if you don't know about Riri Williams, here's a little backstory. She's a genius-level character who made her own version of the Iron Man armor. And as a fellow Chicagoan, Eve truly cares for Riri as more than just a character. Also, if you've ever had a chance to meet, hear, or read any of Eve's writing, you know there is nothing she loves more than Chicago and Chicago natives. After our amazing 12-issue run on Riri, Eve is now tackling the champions, a team of teenage superheroes. Currently, the team includes so many great superheroes, including Ms. Marvel, Spider-Man, a.k.a. Miles Morales, and Nova. Eve has these teen vigilantes running into a new task force called Cradle, who are trying to actually put an end to their young heroism. Needless to say, I love Eve's writing. I love this entire concept. And so I was uber excited to learn about the influences behind Eve's take on these young Marvel characters. For folks who are kind of new to your writing and folks who are kind of getting introduced, particularly to some of the stuff we're going to talk about in this conversation, tell us a little bit about how you would describe your background as um, being from the Midwest, being a writer, being a teacher, and like all your, like how this feeds into your work. Oh, thank you. Nobody ever asked me that. Wow. I should have known I was going to get the good questions on Marvel Voices. Um (laughs) That's such a good question. In a way, I'm probably the least equipped person to answer it, right? Because I don't, you don't see yourself, you know, from the way other people see you or the connections. But I think, let's see, you know, I was, I, so I grew up in Chicago where I live now as well. Um, So obviously that's a a really big fun part of writing Ironheart is um, the chance that I got to write a character that was in Chicago. That was dope. You know, I was just the kid who, Like probably like every one of our listeners, just, you know, nerdy kid living very much in your head. And so in my head, I was always the star of my own story. I remember being like six or seven and, you know, riding my bike and I was allowed to ride my bike from one corner to the other corner. So the idea is my mom could always come outside and see me. Once you turn the corner, you can't be seen, right? Um, So I would just be riding back and forth on my block and I would literally narrate my adventures in the third person. I would be like, and then she saw a dead bug. She got off the bike and examined it, right? And so because I I started, you know, I started reading when I was pretty young and um, I love computers and technology and devices, but I do think there's something special about the fact that we grew up in a time when there really weren't options but to read if you wanted to be entertained, right? So I read a lot and I, I gravitated toward, towards a lot of, you know, fantasy stuff when I was younger. My dad read me The Hobbit when I was eight and that like changed my life. I was like, wow, this is just the greatest thing. I was super into C.S. Lewis, super into Chronicles of Narnia. And yeah, I think I think that that the thing about stories is that they're everywhere. And once you start looking, it becomes really hard to, um, to turn that off. And I think another thing is that, you know, Chicago is a very literary city, a very storytelling city. I sometimes compare it to, you know, if you're from New Orleans, you know that music is part of your heritage, whether you, you might not actually be a musician yourself, right? But you just grow up in this environment where music is all around you. And that's kind of how it was for me in Chicago, where I knew that I was from the city of Gwendolyn Brooks. I was from the city of Sandra Cisneros. I was from the city of Studs Terkel and from all these people that, that are pretty much famous for telling the stories of regular people. Um, 
And so I think that I just, you know, it took that for granted in a lot of ways as a young person. And then, you know, uh, also like many people, my people in my family are great storytellers. Um, you know, my grandfather and my parents, they're those type of people that will tell you the same story over and over and over, but it's really good. You know, they, they're really good storytellers. And, um, yeah, so I think, I think for me, what I'm always trying to do in my storytelling now is exactly what you said, like try to get to the heart of the things that make people people. And I think what's so fun about superhero comics, uh, it's such a cliche, but you know, it's like people come for the human stories, right? People love Spider-Man because they love Peter. And I think that if you're looking at superhero writing from the outside, it's really easy to focus on the big stuff, right? The Hulk smash stuff, right? The stuff that is superhuman in every sense of the word, not just in the sense of having certain physical abilities, but pushing past like mental or emotional limitations. And I think what makes these stories really interesting and iconic is when we resist that urge and remember that our superheroes are people. And it's the tension between those two parts, the super person and the regular, regular, schmegular person inside. To me, that's kind of like where the story is. No, I was about to say you hit the nail in the head with New Orleans because being from Louisiana, that's like I always joke. I didn't get exposure to comic book stores like I would have liked to as a kid, but I collected music like other folks collected comic books. And, you know, and it's so funny because you like even the fact that the American Writers Museum is in Chicago, like it makes so much sense to me that there is this this lineage, this heritage of storytelling and it, it's so incredible to me because you have written so much of the, st- the story of Black Chicago in your work. To the point that you've been dubbed the true mayor of Chicago. Could you talk to me about, like, where did this name come from? And, like, I, you obviously have kind of touched on your relationship with the city, but you tr- you could live anywhere and do what you do, but you've chosen to stay in Chicago. Like, that says a lot. Yeah, thank you. I mean, yeah, the, there's a journalist uh, who used that as a headline for an interview. And as a true Midwesterner, I was like uh, very honored, but also very mortified because I'm very bad at, I, I don't take compliments um, super well. So <laughs> I like so embarrassed. But uh, yeah, I think, you know, I love, I love where I'm from. I love where I'm from. And I think that some of it is that, like, do I think Chicago is the most magical place in the multiverse? Yes, I absolutely do. I think we have the bombest food. I think we have the dopest people. I think we have the coolest artists. Absolutely. But I also think part of it is that I just, part of my politics is that I think, you know, people say, like, whatever you are, be a good one, right? I think we could extend that to, like, wherever you are, be a good one, right? Like, I think that I really believe wherever any of us are, the world is better when we model the kind of places that we want to see immediately around us. And that means building communities. That means believing that the people that, you know, where we live are special and magical. And I kind of, I love people who love where they're from, you know? Um, So it almost doesn't like, I feel like whenever I meet people from Detroit or New Orleans or Philly, right? Like, or Oakland, we always really hit it off because those people, they're going to let you know within four to five seconds what block they're from. I'm trying not to punch my hand too much during, because my hands are like right in front of the mic. So I'm trying to, I have like this impulse to do this like forceful, emphatic hand punching, punching. One of my friends was like, that's black punctuation. <laughs> so I'm not going to do that because we're in the audio interview. That and clapping, what right. I need you to know. Right, I'm not... <laughs> I'm trying to not irritate the producer by punching my hand directly into the mic. But yeah, I think that, you know, loving where you're from is, is a politic that I really believe in because all places are flawed. All places have bad histories. All places have painful histories and all places, if you look, also have the people that are committed to, to fixing them and making them better and loving them and celebrating them and, and making them magic, you know? And so I love Chicago because it's where I'm from, but I also, um, you know, if you plopped me on Mars, I will ride hard for Mars tomorrow. I'll be like Martians all day, Martian gang in this, you know, I would just be like the most hardcore Martian that you could possibly imagine, you know, before I froze to death. I will, I will say that like, I love that because one of the things that I loved about your Ironheart run is that, and I love this every time someone in the Marvel universe gets this opportunity, right? Whether it's Marvel's Cloak and Dagger, where they were able to develop out Marvel's New Orleans, whether it's, you know, Runaways and you're able to like develop out Marvel's LA, you really had this opportunity to develop out 
Marvel's Chicago. Um, and, and so I have to know because you ride hard for the Marvel universe. It, tell me about how does it start? Like, where does young Eve, who is like, I love the Lion Witch in the wardrobe, uh, get into Marvel comics? Like, where does that start? Well, you know, I will say that I also was a big fan of the distinguished competition as a, as a young person, but we won't talk about that uh, in detail. But uh, those who were my friends in, in high school or college, they're going to be like, mm-hmm, you can't don't get on there and lie because we all know the truth about the, the tattoo that I that I drew on my chest with a Sharpie when I was 14 of of a certain uh boomerang like weapon that I thought would make a really great first tattoo. Uh, luckily they don't let 14 year olds get tattoos. (laughs) And so, uh, and you know, my Sharpie prototype, let me know this was actually not a great idea, but yeah. So I grew up reading, reading some of those comics. I actually grew up reading a lot of Archie comics. I had that moment of getting my, like getting my comic books taken away from me in third grade, uh, because I was doing the not so slick, um, book in the book, <laughs> comic book in a book thing. And my teacher, like during math class, my teacher walked over and, and took it away. But yeah, so I think that, you know, for me, one of the biggest draws to Marvel was obviously Storm, you know, because she, I, it's really hard for me to express, especially to black women who are not that much younger, like black women who are even 10 or 15 years younger. Um, I just, there has been such a sea change in the levels of representation and visibility for black women and girls in everywhere you look. Right. And it's still not where it should be. And I also think representation is not enough. Right. I think the question, you know, there's the hashtag representation matters to me. Representation is kind of like the bare minimum. It's actually where you start. Mm -hmm. And then we also have to talk about like, what are, what are the messages we're putting forth about types of people, right? Like what are the stakes of that representation who gets to tell those stories? Right. And so on. But so storm was like, not only was she, you know, the most visible black woman in comics, she was really, I mean, I can think of a few other examples, but, you know, really one of the most visible black women in any element of popular culture, television, movies, like anything, you know, anything that I would be watching. I mean, I grew up in the city of Oprah. So Oprah, you know, shout out to Oprah, she's fire. But, you know, I'm really hard pressed to think of like, great, iconic Black women, popular culture characters that I grew up seeing. And so Storm, not only do you have, I mean, this is going to sound really sad. I I probably shouldn't admit this on air, but like, you know, now they're getting rid of um, Aunt Jemima syrup. And when I I grew up in the nineties and so they had come up with like a, like more socially acceptable Aunt Jemima who kind of looked like she could be like your Aunt Sheila, maybe. Yeah, no, right? she like, really, she could have been, no, she I like know exactly Sheila, what you're you know? talking about. She had like, a nice she... little cut. She had a nice little auntie cut. Right. You know, she had these pearl earrings. And I really, this is so, but I used to look at her and be like, there we are, fist up, right? We we out here in the grocery aisle, like there she is, right? Because there was really, yeah. like, that's so sad. <laughs> They're just, we're not images of black women uh, outside like my household. <laughs> and I think like one of the examples I always give is I was a huge Power Rangers fan growing up. And I think about like literally, you know, the idea of Power Rangers is like you're super, super oversimplifying, you know, these tropes and every kid you're supposed to look at them and be like, which one are you? Right. And we would play Power Rangers all the time. And I would always be like, well, I know I'm not Zach. Right. Because I'm a girl and there's these super oversimplified notions of gender that we see in these things. And I know I'm not a white girl. I know I'm not Kimberly. I can't play. I, I guess I'll be Trini, you know. And so I would literally. God, God bless Trini. Like she was holding Trini it was down. Her, holding it down for, for the women all of, of us. But it's actually like a bizarre, it's like a weird 90s version of like the Clark doll test or something of like your little black girl, like which character do you choose? Right. And it's like, well, the girls always have to be doing, you know, like the cheerleading. It was very clear to me that I could not be white. Right. That the white girl was not an option, that the that wasn't a thing. Right. That that couldn't be overlooked. And then that like the gender aspect couldn't be overlooked either. But yeah, I think that, you know, those are those sound like silly examples, but those are really the moments as a kid where you start to accept like. There's, I'm just, the world that I live in is just not going to have me as an option, right? Mm. It's just, I'm just not going to see that. And that's just how it is. And so Storm was really special because she was this just notable exception of not only being a black woman, but being the black woman who 
was the leader, right? Who was the wise one, who was in charge, who was, right, who was dope. And that was so, that was really special. So I think that that was, that always um, was something that made Marvel really exciting for me. And then, you know, just like more broadly, the X-Men, you know, are just fire. Yo, I don't, I don't know many black women of a certain age who don't ride hard. Even if they're not comic book fans, right? Like everybody knows Storm. Everybody, Storm is a black celebrity. And she, there's a certain category of like black celebrities where you get to the one name basis, right? So like, People, it means that black people truly love you when they just call you by your one name. Now, Storm only has one name. I mean, I guess you would call her Aurora, but she is a legend. She is a legend, right? Like people who really don't know anything about nerd stuff at all. They know Storm. They love her. Yeah. No. And I think that's, that's such a real statement because then if you are a comic book fan, you realize that Storm has had the privilege of something that many women, let alone women of color, have had in comics, which is she's complex. She's had love interests. There's right other timelines. There's bloodstorm. She has a real backstory. Other... <laughs> right. And she is multidimensional. She's changed her hair. She's lost her power. She's got it back. She's led, she's led the Morlocks. She's led the X-Men. She's been an Avenger. Like, she's one of those things where it's almost, you can look at her and go, almost anything is possible. That's right. That's right. So in all of this, you you go from this this nerdy kid who basically got her comp. I, I used to get my Melanie Ron like fantasy novels stolen from me, which is the reason why I didn't learn grammar <laughs> till I was in law school because I wasn't paying attention. Um, but you know now you write across all of these mediums, right? Like, and for anyone who is a writer or an aspiring writer or someone who just loves reading, like you get that these are all different and all complex and all very unique in the aspects of either visually or literally telling the story. Like for right. you, what is the most exciting part? Cause you, again, you've made a concerted choice to intentionally tell stories in different mediums. Yeah. I've done at this point, I can say I've done everything. I have not written a movie. That's the only one, but I've written a play, write comics. I've written a nonfiction book, fiction, um, what am I forgetting? Poetry, working on a TV show right now. So yeah, I've, I've, I've written all the things I like to write. Uh, I like to write all the things. Yeah. So I'm sorry. I forgot your question. I was, I, well, I was getting to it, which is <laughs> perfect. Cause it was a perfect segue is like, what is the most exciting part about having these different avenues in which to, to tell stories? Yeah. You know, I think that, um, I think that we really, so I think genre does matter. I have friends that are like genres fake genre. I think, I think genre does matter because I think that when you stake a claim in a genre, you're staking a claim about who you're accountable to and like who you're studying and what the craft is. So I'm not ready to throw genre in the garbage the way some of my homies are. That being said, I really think that um, we do ourselves a disservice when we identify ourselves primarily as you know, like, well, I'm a fiction writer. I'm a nonfiction writer. I'm in this or that. Because to me, the I, the form should follow the idea, right? And so there are certain ideas that they want to be told a certain way. The story wants to be told a certain way. And when you give yourself space, you know, I've had, you know, short stories that I thought were going to be poems. And then when I started writing this, I was like, no, this wants to be a short story, right? I've had fiction stuff that I was like, oh, this wants to be a graphic novel, right? Some, of something I'm working on right now. And I think that when you give yourself the space to do that, it really just opens up so much for you. And it's scary. Like, it's definitely scary. When I have sat down to write something and I, I didn't have experience doing it before, I always have a little bit of a meltdown, right? And then the way I get over my meltdown is I have two tools that never fail me in life, which is like studying and asking for help, right? And so once I, and, and making a plan, that's the third, that's the one that comes after studying and asking for help. And so if you have this great idea and you started writing it as a comic book and you're like, I actually really think this needs to be a horror story, a piece of, you know, fiction, prose, horror, but I've never done that before, right? Like you Google, how do I write a horror story? <laughs> you know, like that's really, or, you know, for me, I, I reach out and I ask um, mentors. I have really great mentors and I'm, I'm just really, I think something that, that is an asset of mine is that I'm not afraid to look stupid or to admit that I'm new at something. And I think that for comics, what's been really exciting is some of the things that I have learned 
are things that came from other forms of writing. And then there are things I've learned from writing comics that have helped me with other forms of writing. So for me, two of the biggest things that are really important in comics are um, being economical with your language. So, so doing more with less is really, really, really important. That's why if you see, when you see people that have transitioned from other forms of prose to comics and you peep our first issue, it's always like way too much text, right? I'm gonna come out and say it is me. It's lots of other people too. It's not just me. I'm not going to name names, but you know, and if you ask those people, they will admit it to you too. It's way too much, way too text heavy. You don't have to name names. I already know about five people you talking about. It's fine. But uh, but they also have said the exact same thing. They're yeah, like, they're, we had to learn economy of of words, and right. that you don't have to explain everything because there's this other part of comics, which is as visuals, right? And that's the other that's the other big lesson from comics, which is collaboration, right? And so your job is to set up this incredibly talented person to shine and to do the thing that they do really well. They're looking to you for guidance about how to do that. But if you don't leave space and not just leave space, not leave like begrudging space, like at the end of the bench, like you can sit over here, you know, I mean, like make a stage for them. How do you make a stage for them to come out and be an incredible ballet dancer and come out and and do the nutcracker? Right. And so I think that that is, um, I'm a very collaborative, um, worker. I really like working in teams with other people. And I think, that's something I love about comics is the opportunity to be really on a, on a team with folks. Um, and that, that I love being in awe of other people that do things that I can't do. (laughs) Right. And I love sitting back and being like, wow, like they really killed that. And so it's, it's like a bananas feeling to write something on a piece of paper and then to have this, you know, incredible person draw it and take a picture out of your head and put it on paper, right? Like that is, that is a rush. And so, um, I'm really glad that, that I get a chance to do that. Um, it's just, it's really a magical opportunity. I am a huge fan of Riri Williams. Same. Have been, <laughs> have been for a really long time, like huge fan of Ironheart, but for you, why were you so drawn to Riri in and of itself and what was it that made you want to tell the story that you told about Riri and Natalie and how she interacted with the world and kind of taking, really taking a lot more ownership over herself? Herself. Yeah. 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 Oh, man. So first of all, I have to do a, a unapologetic plug, which is that there's now an Ironheart trade graphic novel that collects issues one through 12 of my whole run. Um, and I really encourage folks to go get it because I think it's really cool. But I I love Riri. <laughs> and I mean that in a really creepy, probably like psychologically unhealthy way, which is that I she's very real in my head. Um, and I really love her. And I love her the way that I love people, which is that I love all of them, even the really flawed and broken parts. And I think that you know, what we talked about with Storm is all the complex personhood that she has had the opportunity to portray over the years. And I think that my goals, um, my biggest storytelling goal with Riri was to be like, why does she do any of this stuff? Right. And what is actually at stake for her? Because for me, you know, and I think that again, that this is like the same way as a comic book artist, you have to be humble in terms of being comfortable working with an artist and not doing everything for them, leaving space for them to shine. There's also a sort of humility that you need to pick up a character that somebody else created, <laughs> right? That like, we're, we are guns for hire at the end of the day, right? Like somebody hands you a story and they're like, all right, you know, Miss Marvel, Peter Parker, come up with something. I'm like, cool. They're switching bodies, right? Like, like that's, but you, you know, you have to, you can't be precious about that. Like you're kind of getting, what you inherit from this character. And so, you know, um, with what Brian Michael Bendis had created was the the backstory of, of Ironheart. And so we kind of had this checklist of things, right? So she's 15. She's a genius. She goes to MIT. She's from Chicago. She lost her biological father and her stepfather and her best friend to gun violence, right? And she replicated the Ironheart suit and was mentored by Tony Stark. That's basically, that's kind of what I what I had to work with. And right away as, you know, a black Chicagoan, as somebody who has lived, um, the aftermath of gun violence in my community in, in many different ways. And as an educator, right. Who has taught 
young people who also have lived the aftermath of, of gun violence in many different ways, I really thought, okay, my biggest question is like, why would a person who lives with her mom alone and who has lost literally like every everybody she loved to violence, why would she put on a suit and go out and subject herself to violence and danger? Like, why would she do that? And I needed to answer that question. And I also needed to answer the question of like, where's her people? Like, who are her homies, right? Like, is she, was she got nobody? She got no friends? Like, come on now, you know? <laughs> Like, who loves her? Who rides for her? Who checks on her? Who checks up on her? Who tells her that she is ridiculous and, like, bogus? And so those were some of the big questions that I wanted to answer. And then I knew that all the other stuff would come, right? And so all the other stuff that happens in the run is kind of, for me, in service of of those those things. And so the internal world of Riri during this run is, like, Riri has PTSD because she witnessed multiple extremely traumatic violent events as in formative years of her life. Riri is very fearful for the same reason, right? And at the same time, she is not only defined by those traumas. She also is, um, you know, one of the critiques, like one of the critiques that people made on the, the angry, angry interwebs about the character is they're like, she's so cold hearted. And I was like, okay, that's what you think. As a black woman, I can definitely relate to people projecting emotions onto you, like you're angry, right? Or things that you may not actually feel. But I was like, oh, I bet. Okay, she's cold hearted. Like, let's play that up. So she's super awkward. She is cold hearted because she's very calculating. She sees the world in very clear black and white ways. She has the thing that a lot of kids have when if you socialize a young person at a young age by telling using words like genius, sending them to MIT, then they get certain messages about their own abilities, right? Like, well, I'm right. I'm smart. And that's really complicated in the real world. And so maybe that makes Riri not always good at being a friend or not always good at connecting with other people, especially when you combine it with her, her vulnerabilities and her fears and her traumas. And so I wanted to, to kind of tease apart that stuff. I really wanted her to have a close relationship with her mom, right? Like this is her and her moms. Like they both have experienced tremendous loss. And I wanted, I wanted her mom to check her. Like you a superhero, but you know, I'm not boo-boo the fool. Like I, like she's still a yo, black mom. We, when that happened, <laughs> it was like, yo, it's real black motherhood. What is happening? <laughs> yeah. That was, that was the boo-boo the fool heard around the world that like, you know, but I was just trying to think, you know, what I, what would my mom say to me in these situations, right? And, yeah. um, you know, and and I think, so those are things I really wanted to play up. Um, Xavier, a lot of people think that that's a character that I created. He's her, her best friend. I did not create Xavier. I found him. I was pouring through all, like, Invincible Iron Man and everything and trying to find, like, is there a kid? Is there somebody out here? And there's this scene. Anyone. Somebody. And there's this scene where they come to repo uh, Riri's Ironheart suit um, uh, during a whole Tony Stark Stark Industries debacle. And her neighbor is like, hey, Riri, what's going on? And I was like, cute neighbor. Boom. Got it. Like, you're the homie now. So I really wanted to, you know, play that up. And I think one other thing is um, the MIT thing, which you know, it, it becomes less important as spoiler, like Riri becomes more and more distant from MIT. But, um, I got my doctorate at Harvard. Um, and I'm, uh, and I got my undergrad at the university of Chicago. I'm a professor at the university of Chicago. Um, and because I got my doctorate at Harvard, I lived in Boston for five years and, um, spent a lot of time in Cambridge and, you know, spent a fair amount of time around MIT. And so I also wanted to explore like, you know, being a black person in these institutions is not always the easiest thing. And it's really complicated. And there's a tension, like one of the things that happened um, at the end of the last run was that Riri gets given this lab, like the dean of MIT comes in and is like, here, you have this lab. Um, now you don't have to worry about Stark Industries. And it was, the way it was written is like, great. Like this is a happy ending. Like now Riri has this lab given to her from MIT. Well, you know, if you're a person of color who's been in academia or in any kind of institution that is like an elite white institution, you know that, um, you're, you're like, what's the cost, right? What are the trade-offs, right? Like, and so that was something I wanted to play up right away. So that kind of becomes a plot point of like Riri in a sense is being used in this situation and she doesn't necessarily have the maturity or the context to fully get what's happening right away. Um, and so I wanted to just explore also like, what is it like to be a black girl 
in an institution like that and to show a little bit of love to a part of the country that I, I really have a lot of love for. And, you know, to your point about like having opportunities to build out parts of the Marvel universe that we don't usually see. I wanted to show before she ended up coming back to Chicago, I wanted to show Riri in Dorchester, which is like the majority black and Asian and Latine community in Boston that I love. And, and I wanted to show her as like the neighborhood superhero, right? that people have love for and they're really excited to see her and she's kind of stopping like a bodega robbery. (laughs) You know, I just wanted to have her be like, you know, your friendly neighborhood Ironheart a little bit. Um, And I think it was really, really special for me to show some of those communities in print that you don't see a lot of them in comics. No. And I will tell you that particular scene in the comic stood out to me. It was very reminiscent of another scene in Nettie Okorafor's Wakanda Forever, where you see Storm in an African bodega getting food to cook. And you think about this reference point and what it is and how you're able to take that culturally and place it into the Marvel universe. And culturally also, you have this wonderful way and have been complimented a number of times on your ability to write for young people how do you inform your voice when it comes to approaching writing for young characters, particularly when you're talking about Riri, but also like there's a scene in champions where I'm just like, I don't ever really like you, you get it sometimes, but you don't really have a chance to see that many young people in one room at the same time all with unique voices and personalities. And I was just like, yo, this is so I dope. I love that scene so much. Are you talking about the basement, the secret basement meeting? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was so fun. That was so fun to write. You know, I love, I love writing young people for young people. And I think like, you know, I mean, again, like this is a conversation for my therapist, but like, why am I a whole adult who is professionally engaged and just doing the things that I was in love with as a 15 year old? Like, that's probably a little weird. Right. And so it's a little bit also of just like a millennial generational problem that we're just like, I'm just trying to live like my stolen childhood, you know? So, but I, so I think that like part of what I love about writing young people is that all of us can remember whether you're living through them right now, whether you are 13, 14, 15, 16, you're living through these things right now, or whether you're a grown up. I think that we remember those feelings of vulnerability, of fear, of not feeling fully in control of your life, of the world being unpredictable. And those are also, to me, some of the most interesting emotional impulses or emotional undercurrents of superheroing generally. Like if you think of any superhero, it almost doesn't matter who they are. They have at some point had to deal with how is it that this great power that I have and the implications of that power and the necessity I have to help other people or do big things, how does that run up against these people that I love that maybe I'm putting in danger? How does that run up against my dreams for myself, for my future, for how I'm trying to make my relationships work, right? And I think that like that's what makes great superhero stories generally. And those are themes that are very much at the forefront when the characters are teens. And I also kind of, I love playing with the like perpetual underdogness of the teen heroes. Like they're always kind of getting clowned. That was also like a fun recurring joke for me in Ironheart that in the real world, when people be like, wow, you write for Marvel Comics, what do you do? And I'd be like, let me explain to you in great detail. The I'm like, okay, you know who Iron Man is. All right, walk with me, come on a journey with me as I explain who Ironheart is, right? And so that's like a recurring joke in the comic as well, is that people like mess up her name, right? There's one part where she's like, no, it's a heart. I have a heart on my suit. They're like, thanks, Iron Girl. Like, no, there's literally it's a heart, right? Okay, thanks. You know, got it. Appreciate you. And I think that those kinds of moments are really fun with teen heroes in generally, where in general, which is that like this them getting clowned, clowning each other, <laughs> right? And like that's that's just really fun stuff to write. It's really fun stuff to write, but the stakes feel so high. And I think that implicitly, I'm also trying to advocate for, I think it's always important that we keep a space for teen heroes in the Marvel universe. I think that, that we need to make a space also for teens themselves to continue to be the readers and make sure that we have exciting things that are appealing to them and meaningful to them, even if they're not in their thirties and forties and don't have as much disposable income, (laughs) you know, um, that we keep 
keep a space for them and make sure that they have they have a home as readers. And I, and I love that because it's one of those things where it kind of intersects with this idea that you have this particular love for Afrofuturism as well, right? It is a theme that I've seen woven into kind of all of your work. Um, what is it about Afrofuturism, the concepts that make up this pillar of literature and art and music, like it is all encompassing at this point. I think, you know, it started on pages, but now it really is fashion. It is TV. It is, is everything. What drew you to Afrofuturism and, and how do you think it's impacted your work? Yeah, it's definitely, um, probably the most, I would say Afrofuturism alongside like Chicago and like black girlhood, black womanhood. Those are like the most consistent, themes across everything that I write. Um, and I'm writing, I'm slowly but surely writing a book about Afrofuturism as well. Um, so that'll come out in the question mark, question mark future. (laughs) Um, so I think that when a lot of people think about Afrofuturism, they think about the word that is in it etymologically, which is the future. Right. And there's, there's an artist named Alicia B. Wormsley, and she makes this, this art that just says there are Black people in the future. And she made this as, um, at one point, it was a mural that she put up in Pittsburgh. And it was so controversial that it had to be taken down. And I think that that incident actually sums up why Afrofuturism is radical and necessary, because merely making the claim that there will be, that there are Black people in the future, right, that we are going to be here, and therefore that all the things that derive from that, like your science fiction world, your comic book world, whatever, should include us, that that is like a threatening idea explains why it is necessary, right? To literally just say, we're going to be here tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow if I'm going to get my Macbeth on, right? Like that we're going to be here as an assertion is a is a radical and powerful assertion. And I think some of it, I think some of why it first appealed to me, and I have to give a shout out to Krista Franklin, who's a visual artist and poet, who's a very important Afrofuturist thinker and was one of the people who really brought me to the aesthetic. Um, I mean, I think when I was younger, the thing that was first appealing was just the representational aspect, right? Of this, like, I love, and it's why I'm geeked, right? Like about things like, you know, Lovecraft Country or things, things like Star Trek, right? Like some of it is just, it just feels dope to see yourself, right? And that's why Black Panther was so important for so many of us as, you know, the film. Again, even people that don't identify as nerds or don't know a lot about comics is like, it's just fire to see Black people shoot laser beams. It's fire to see Black people do matrix backflips. It's fire to see Black people teleport. Like, it's just fire. And so there's that aspect of it. But I think that as I've gotten deeper into Afrofuturist thinking, yes, that claim that we are here in the future is really powerful, but it's also transcends the idea of just the future per se. And where I'm at now is this is where I start to get like real weird and woo woo on, on the podcast is like, for me, Afrofuturism is actually a much broader set of claims. This is also where I start to be a sociology professor. So sorry. Um, Afrofuturism is about a much broader set of claims about like time itself and history itself and the nonlinearity of those things. And I think that that's one of the things about Afrofuturism that I'm most intrigued with is the premise that time is actually not linear. And that the way that we think about time, the way we think about something as simple as the past or the future is very rooted in like a a very specific like Western capitalist, white European way of thinking. Um, That is one worldview. It's, It's not a wrong worldview necessarily, but it's one worldview. It's not the only way to think about time. I mean, anybody who's ever seen Infinity War, like, can kind of vibe with this, right? Like, this is what we, maybe Doctor Strange was, you know, had a little bit of Afrofuturist vibes, right? Because part of the idea of thinking about something like a multiverse necessitates a way of thinking about time as being layered on top of itself so that everything is actually always happening all at the same time. And the lines between what we consider the past, the present, and the future are much blurrier. And if we start to think about that idea, then our relationship with our ancestors becomes different. Our relationship with our descendants and our accountability to them becomes different. Eve starts to sound really weird on the podcast. And like, this is, (laughs) this is the part where I'm this stringing together, like different, I'm the meme of like stringing together different pieces of paper, but you get where I'm going with this. No. And I, I love it because my next question to you was going to be like this idea that when people hear Afrofuturism, of course they think immediately Wakanda, but I also feel like 
there are, you were able to bring the concept of Afrofuturism in to the Marvel universe because it does have a, it has a place in the Marvel universe, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Riri is an Afrofuturist. I mean, it's a, it's a black girl flying around with like rocket boots and laser beams coming out of her hands. <laughs> That's pretty, that's, that's Afro. I mean, you know, so I can't take full credit to it. You know, I think that I, let me put it this way. I think all black superheroes are Afrofuturist. I think that the idea of a black person having a power that um, can save their life and can save the life of others, like that's profoundly Afrofuturist, right? I think all of these things, I think like mutants, once we we want to get into the discourse about mutants, like mutantdom is all about questions of future of futurity, right? And like what the earth is gonna look like and and um yeah, it's all it's all there. I, I can't take too much credit for it, but it's been really fun to to play it up and I think to use it as a way of starting different conversations. Yeah. Yeah. And now you're starting this this new conversation uh with outlawed uh with our champions. And you have a particular love for the champions, though. I love the champions, man. I love the champs so much. Like, they're angsty. They're broody. They've dated each other. They've not... They're they, funny. They, 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 they're from different planets. <laughs> right. Like, it's... <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. I I love the champions. I think... Well, for one thing, writing um, writing champions for me is really fun because it's you know it's always cool to go from fandom to to writingdom, and I'm a big fan of the champions. And I think it's also a great challenge because you know you have to write an ensemble cast, and so you know it's mad champion. It's like hella champions out there, <laughs> and so they're almost as many champions as they are people who have either been active Avengers, retired Avengers. Temperate part-time Avengers, right? Avengers in training used to be Avengers. Artists formerly known as Avengers, right? There's a lot of champions, um, and one of the things that Jim Zub did on his run is make that really part of the story, which is that the champions are trying to be more global, to be more inclusive, to um, really highlight other young people around the world that are that are superheroes, and to bring them into the fold. And so, just as a writer, when you say, okay you know, I have like six different people that all need, uh, that all have their own fans that are all really great, that are all really deserving. How do I weave together a story that's going to have something for each of them and give each of them a chance to grow and to shine and to work together? Um, that's a really fun challenge. I also like writing the champions. Cause like I said, I'm a very collaborative person and I like thinking through the ways that they work, well, that they work together sometimes well, sometimes not well. And I love seeing them like the thing that unites them is that they love each other, right? They're friends and they really love each other and they really are trying to do the right thing. And so I think it's really cool to make space for them to suss out and argue over and cry over and debate over what that means and what that looks like. And for the answers to those questions to not always be super simple. And so one thing that's really important to me for folks reading Outlawed and reading the Champions run is that there's this question on the table, right? Which is like, should young people be superheroes on their own without any kind of mentorship or guidance? Um, Should that be legal? Should that be allowed? I hope that readers come away with really differing opinions on this. And I've tried to write the story in a way that different characters make different cases for different perspectives and that it's not, it's not, a, it's not cut and dry. It's not so clear what the right answer is. So my two biggest questions is, you know, one, there's a social political, very much politicization that happens in this book. One, Bravo for you and all your ability to create acronyms. Two, because Natalie and then Cradle, I'm like, what are we doing? My favorite line is, you're just going to, Squirrel Girl saying, you're just going to leave the H out. Like, I'm done. I was just like, (laughs) like, there's a command of a character that was just, because that's exactly what Doreen would do. <laughs> and, it's just, um, it's just, and it's also fun to write that, to have someone in the corner like, okay, we're, we're really just going to pretend there's no H here. All right. Okay. Okay. And also like, you know, somebody's like, squirrel crew. Stop. Shut up. Antagonizing. Stop antagonizing people. About to get arrested. Um, <laughs> but, you know, what was it about the creation of Kamala's Law? Yes. It's just, it's, it's an interesting, it's a very interesting concept because of who Kamala Khan is, like as a character, 
um, as part of the Marvel universe. But, you know, tell us about how you chose Cradle and Kamala Zah and you brought these things together and, and following along with these characters that not only fans love, but you obviously have a deep affection for. Yeah. Uh, you know what I really found? I, okay, I found the email thread with this now. It was originally called Task Force K. So I found this thread where it's me going through with uh, with Alana, like, okay, what about this? It should be called Cerberus. should be called Operation Night Angel, Ooh. Operation Nightlight, Cradle. Uh, so yeah, so Cradle stands for Child Hero Reconnaissance and Disruption Law Enforcement. That was a that was a feat. Uh, if I get a Pulitzer Prize, it should Say be that three times fast. Yeah, I should get a Pulitzer Prize <laughs> for coming up with that. If 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 I ever get any literary accomplishments, like major literary accomplishments, I want it to be for that. Yeah. So I think I guess the question is kind of like where did that come from? So I think it's funny because over the period of time that we have been working on this title, the world has changed and sometimes life imitates art where some of the questions that we've been wrestling with in the series, because we started working on this in uh, like summer 2019 in terms of like thinking it through. So some of the things, some of the themes have really come to the fore in terms of our real life political reality. But, you know, I think a lot about policing. I think a lot about law enforcement. I write a lot about those things. And I think a lot about what the messages are that we send to young people about control and the level of control and surveillance that they are supposed to accept. And, you know, in terms of my age, like, I was these kids age when September 11th happened, right? So I was I was 15 when September 11th happened, which means that my political coming of age was in the midst of, you know, the Patriot Act, the war in Iraq, the creation of the Department of Homeland Security, and all of a sudden the country having these debates about things that we are supposedly supposed to do or allow that we're told are for our own safety, right? And so And seeing how people can take real tragedy, right? Like real genuine loss of life, real mourning, real grieving. And then there are always people in the wings ready to seize the political moment and say, okay, well, what you need to do to address that grief and that loss is to give us more control and more power. And, you know, seeing in particular, um, I went to a high school that had a really large population of, of Muslim friends and the fear in the sense of, you know, Islamophobia and attacks and all these things that were all done in the name of safety, right? Like people being taken away from their families, people being arrested, people being disappeared, people being tortured, all these things happening because it's supposedly the only answer to, you know, a grievous threat. And so I think that I'm sure that that coming of age during that time (laughs) made a big impression on me. And I think that as a country, we continue to battle with these questions of, you know, how do we balance the, um, the need for real freedom against the idea of safety and how does that get deployed in different ways by different people in power to um, disempower those who have always been marginalized. And so I think that those are some of the themes that I was really thinking about here. You know, the reason Kamala becomes the face of this law is I just, as a writer, I wanted to have the, the really cruel irony that I knew it would really, really, really upset and enrage her to have her face and her name used as the thing to encourage and enable social control that she doesn't agree with. And so, um, and you know, also like in real life, I don't think people under 21 should be superheroes at all. So like, it's a terrible idea. (laughs) It's absolutely terrible. So I also, and this is where my editor, Alana Smith, really pushed me is like, let's make this really interesting, right? Like obviously Kamala hates it and is against it, but there's lots of really reasonable <laughs> reasons why, you know, maybe this law and um, should should exist, but maybe it shouldn't be enforced in this way by these types of people. So these are all things that I wanted yeah. to explore and that I really, really hope lots of young people will enjoy exploring and arguing about as well. Yeah. What should fans look forward to in this really awesome storyline? It's going to be intersecting so many because uh, I don't even I don't think a lot of folks also understand like outlaw is intersecting. Right, right. A little vent type situation, a little vent type situation. Well, I'll tell you what I'm most excited about, but I can't give it away. We have an issue where um, the team gets to team up with another team that is very fire, very fire dope team. Um, 
And the the latter team that shall remain unnamed is uh they they are related to one of the coolest other events and storylines that I think is happening and it has happened in the Marvel universe in the last several years. So I'm not gonna say what it is or who they are, but I'm really excited about that. Um I was extremely vague, trying to keep it very spoiler free. But I hope people. Oh, um, like I have so many things running around <laughs> in yeah, my head. I'll tell you. I'll tell you when we when we're not recording who it is. But and the other thing I want fans to look out for is, um, you know, Viv is really important to this storyline. And look, Viv fans, I want you to know that I see you, I hear you. I appreciate you. And I have tried to do um, some really, what I think are some interesting things with Viv in this story because I love her. I mean, first of all, she's another person that has a three-letter palindrome name with a V in it. So obviously, you know, me and Viv are cool. But yeah, I think I really, I really love what happens with Viv in this story. And I hope that people will love it too. And if they don't love it, I will um, read your respectful hate mail and we'll call it a day. Yo, I am really looking forward to this. I I am so excited for folks to get a chance to read this and all of your other amazing works. I know you got books on books on books on books on books. Thank you. Well, I really appreciate you and I'm really grateful for the time to talk. And because I know this is being edited, I can tell you that. So yeah, I'm really geeked for that, for that, um, that issue, but you can edit all that out. And I will now go back into legit mode and say, thank you so much for having me and for everything that you do with this podcast and in the world. And I appreciate you. And if you are listening and you have read Ironheart or Marvel team up or incoming or champions or outlawed or any of the stuff that I worked on, I want you to know, I really, 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 truly appreciate you. And I thank you. And I hope you like the stories. Marvel's Voices is produced by me, Angelique Roche, Persia Berlin, M.R. Daniel, and Jorge Estrada. Our director of audio is Jill Duboff. Our development manager is Brad Barton. This episode was mixed by Cedric Wilson at Lantigua Williams & Co. Our theme music was composed and performed by Kamau Wainaina. <laughs>